and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to see all our stuff. Uh, we actually just brought David French's contribution to the new, newly ignited debate about what uh, the broad coalition of anti-Trump, Trump skeptical, never Trump uh, people, uh, what their attitude to be should be towards the Republican Party writ large. Um and David's position, which is causing some consternation among um, people who are deeper in the um, never Trump well, uh, his position is that that the party we shouldn't throw out the bathwater of the party. Just if we, even if we want to throw out the baby, which is Donald Trump, um, you can take a look at that. You can also, if you become a paid member, you can see all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, you can comment on things. You can see the Wednesday G file, which got an interesting reaction from people. Um, and you can find out uh, how much wood a woodchuck would chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. Uh, today's episode is brought to us by Keeps. More about them in a little bit. Um, so uh, I just wrote the G file. I got to get to editing the galleys of it in a second. Well, when I'm done with this. And I am parked off MacArthur Boulevard, between MacArthur Boulevard and Fox Hall Road in northwest Washington, D.C., and it may start raining soon. If it does, um, well, we'll just have some more drama and some, you know, gritty verite for this podcast. Um, so where to begin? All right, well, you know, I, I know people don't like me regurgitating the whole G-file in audio form, but I will give you some highlights. Um, and also, I... Uh, I spared readers some of the grosser details of the story um, that I opened the G-File with, with, but since it's a much more intimate medium, um, maybe I'll give you a little more um, color. So in college, one summer, I lived with two friends. We were all, uh, I I will include myself in this, we were all sort of eccentric in our own ways. Um, But uh, one of them was a friend of mine I haven't seen in 20 years, um, I don't use his real name in the G file to spare him embarrassment, but um, everybody who knew him at the time knows this story, so it's okay. Uh, anyway, he was a really interesting, quirky dude, and one of his one of his staples of his diet was potted meat. And I don't know if you know what potted meat is. For those who don't, um, it's basically the stuff that is unacceptable for things like Scrapple. Um, it is, I would say that Spam is two or three, it's basically not, it's, it's basically a pate compared to potted meat. Um, just to sort of give you a sense of what I mean and to be clear that I'm not being fair, unfair to potted meat. Um, if you read the ingredients, at least on some of the labels, you'll find that one of the key ingredients is beef lips. And basically what potted meat is, um, at least in my imagination, is it's, it's basically all the stuff that sticks to the, um, the grinder blades and also all the stuff that they trim off the choicer pieces of meat um, that would maybe sell as, as scrapple or whatnot. 
Anyway, um, I, uh, he loved potted meat and he would make um, himself potted meat sandwiches. And we thought they were disgusting. And um, what was particularly disgusting, which I didn't mention in the G file, is that uh, one of his ways of, you know, passing the time, uh, uh, economizing his energies, however you want to put it, was he would take, when he took his, shall we say, his constitutional on the commode, um, he would bring <laughs> a plate with a potted meat sandwich and mayonnaise on, on generic white bread into the bathroom with him and sort of uh, in one end out of the other is where we used to put it um, uh, without much improvement to the product. And I would come back from, my, from an internship or wherever I was at the end of the day and I would find in the bathroom uh, these plates with just the crusts and, and mayo and potted meat detritus of the plate still on the sink by the toilet with three or four cigarette butts stubbed out of them. Um, and just the whole image of sitting on the can, smoking some cigarettes and eating some potted meat has been one of the enduring images of my life. Um, so anyway, we gave him a really hard time about eating potted meat. And at one point he turned on us, on me and my other roommate and some friends, and he said, listen, I'll have you know that potted meat meets the minimum requirements set by the Food and Drug Administration to be fit for human consumption. And <laughs> the thing, I, I mean, the thing, I, I mean, in one sense, as I say in the Jew file, he was, it was a fair point because we were saying that stuff was inedible, inedible. But on the other hand, he was also saying it as if this was high praise, you know, that this was a ringing defense of the product in general. And I always loved this idea that, that it, and it's a great example of how some, sometimes people make minimums into maximums or maximums into minimums. And, you know, what I mean by that is like some people will say, you know, like if I say to some lefties, Trump isn't as bad as Hitler, they get out, they get outraged. And yet, you know, like Hitler, <laughs> Hitler should sort of define the outer boundary of bad. It shouldn't define the inner boundary of bad. In other words, like if you fall short of being Hitler, you can still be bad. Um, but there's this weird way our minds work in these ways. And anyway, so he would make the case that, you know, because potted meat, according to the Food and Drug Administration, um, was not unsafe for human consumption, that that was um, a point in its favor. Um, you know, like, so long as it doesn't cause death, bodily harm, or, you know, uh, uh, volcanic uh, uh, gastrointestinal distress, it's fine, you know? And I just kind of think you should set your standards a little higher. And the reason why I bring it up is what, what brought this to mind was um, Donald Trump's consistent bragging about passing this test that is designed for um, finding out whether or not you have dementia. And I think I was really one of the very first people, I wrote my LA Times column on Monday, it appeared on Monday afternoon, to point out that that was sort of the buried lead of the Chris Wallace interview. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there. But the fact that the president of the United States said that the, um, what is it called? The Montreal Cognitive Assess Assessment Test um, 
that the, the final five questions are really hard. He's kept, he said a couple times, they're very, very hard. Um, should be disturbing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like this should be, this is the potted meat of intellectual bragging that, you know, that he passed a test that was not supposed to be an IQ test, but a test to see whether or not you had early onset dementia from Parkinson's or, um, you know, some other, you know, uh, form of senility is not something really to brag about. And so it was interesting in his, in his interview with Dr. Siegel from um, Fox, he bragged about it again. And it was weird how he described this. And a bunch of people tried to dunk on me at Twitter when I was confused about what he was saying. Because when I look at the test, I see 10 questions. And he says there are 30 or 35 questions. And I look at the test and I see 10. But actually, when you break it down, I guess what it is is that there are like eight or nine questions, but in three parts. And so it kind of comes out to 30 questions. People are like, if you just Google it, you'll see that there are 30 questions on it. And well, it, fair enough. But when you look at it, it kind of looks like, like eight or nine questions. But anyway, he, so he says it's 30 or 35 questions. Fine. It's just that's a difference of a measurement about how you define these things. But he also says it's like a half hour long. And the whole test is supposed to take 10 minutes. And so it's kind of weird when he says, you know, when they ask you to test your memory again to go back 20 minutes. He says, you know, remember those questions we asked you 20 minutes ago? Well, the test shouldn't have taken 20 minutes. Anyway, I just think it's sort of astounding that no one can tell the guy, hey, maybe you shouldn't, um, you know, be bragging about this because it is not the messaging you think it is. And as I think Dave Weigel pointed out, you know, there's sort of a, a Streisand effect here. He wanted to make the issue about how Biden couldn't pass this test um, and that, you know, which is, I, I think the whole sort of attacks on Biden in this regard are kind of dishonorable and ugly. Um, and there was a time in American politics where you wouldn't go there like this. But fine. I do think Biden's lost a step. I do think Biden is showing his age. That's all legit. Um, I don't think, as Trump puts it, that he doesn't know he's alive or that he's mentally shot. And as I wrote the other day, as I wrote in that LA Times column, I actually think it's really dumb politics for them to push this line because the whole point of politics is to manage expectations. And that's why before every big debate, the campaigns try to say how the, their opponent is a great debater and has been doing this for years. And you know, they're a trained lawyer or that, you know, like Hillary's been in politics for 30 years. She's done these before. Um, and in that way, you, you raise expectations for your opponent and you lower them for yourself. What they've been doing consistently now in ads is basically saying the guy is a total mental invalid, which just lowers the bar for what he has to do to dispel that criticism. It's sort of like, you know, in the, um, during the uh, impeachment drama, uh, there's a point Andy McCarthy used to make that um, it was really dumb for the Trump team to stick to this idea that the phone call with the Ukrainian president was perfect. You know, and as Andy would say, you know, you never want to go into a courtroom and have to defend a position that's more extreme than the one you need to get your client off. And it would have been much easier for Trump to simply say, hey, look, I can see why people dislike 
you know, people will have concerns about that conversation in retrospect. Maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. Um, but I, you know, whatever. But instead he said the call was perfect. And then the political dynamic was all people, all critics had to do was prove that it was less than perfect to score points on Trump. Um, similarly, you know, if why are they sort of building up expectations that, you know, Biden should be, you know, up there in, um, you know, some hospital gown uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to tell a square from a circle on a piece of paper when if all he does is have a couple gaffes and seem, you know, a little sort of grandfatherly, he beats that expectation. So I think it's sort of a dumb political move on their part. Um, but who knows? I mean, it is possible that if they keep setting this expectation and then he has one bad moment, they'll be able to pounce in a way that has some effect. But it's not it's, it's not the gamble that I would make. But what do I know? Um, but anyway, you know, uh, this this idea that um, the president of the United States should be bragging and, th- and saying that he finds a test for dementia to be a very difficult test. And you can see the light in his eyes. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's as if he's a victim of the flattery that he's come to expect from people. And I do think that Ronnie Jackson, the doctor who first administered it to him, did him no favors by heaping praise on him for taking a test, if, if that's what in fact he did, um, that doesn't measure what Donald Trump thinks it measures. And, you know, they've set themselves up for Biden to take the test if he wants to. I don't think he has to. But if he takes it, he's just going to make Trump look even more foolish. And if I were them, I would be very tempted to do an ad where he takes the test and kind of laughs at it. Um, But anyway, so that's where I began uh, with the cognitive assessment test as the uh, potted meat of American politics. The broader argument I made was... um, one that I, I, I actually think is kind of an important insight. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but it stemmed from the fact I had, I had uh, Matt Continetti on the podcast the other day. And um, it was, I thought, a pretty interesting conversation. We got pretty deep into the conservative intellectual history weeds on some things. But as I told my, um, my guys, if I can't go long nerding out about conservative stuff with you know, Matt Conetti is writing a book on conservative stuff, then why does the remnant even exist? But anyway, he made a really interesting point that kind of crystallized something I've talked about in different ways for a long time, which is that America is really the only country in the world where the right is a dissident movement. You know, traditionally up until, let's say, the Protestant Reformation, um, uh, conservatism was almost definitionally uh, the orthodoxy of the powers that be, right? Of the of the church, of the state, of the of the monarchy. Um, conservatives were ones who defended the status quo. Conservatives were ones who defended established institutions, in part because they ran those institutions. They had a vested interest in it. And America isn't that. America was founded um, by a bunch of dissidents. And, you know, this is why, you know, uh, you know, I point I make often on this podcast that, you know, as Friedrich Hayek put it, that America is really the only country in the world where you can call yourself a conservative 
and be on the side of liberty because the principles that conservatives in America are defending are the essentially classical liberal principles of the American founding. And that makes us weird. That makes America weird. And anyway, but that's not the point that I dwell on because I've made that point a gazillion times. Um, it just seems to me that the more interesting point or the, the broader point is that's true of pretty much everybody in American politics. Everybody thinks they're the dissidents. Everyone thinks they're the rebels. Everyone thinks that they're the, the brave freedom fighters taking on the status quo or the establishment. It's true, first of all, of virtually every flavor of conservative. Um, paleocons, neocons, never Trumpers for sure, Trumpers for sure. Um, even the pecker words of the alt-right and the, 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 the weirdos of, of QAnon, they all think they're rebels. They all think that they're, you know, um, the, the, the Minutemen of a movement taking on the, you know, some evil empire. And, but it's, again, it's not just the conservatives. It's pretty much every variety of liberal. Progressives think that they are um, bold rebels taking on um, you know, a bigoted establishment quo, a bigoted establishment or status quo. Uh, Marxists obviously do. Antifa clearly does. Um, even moderates and centrists, you know, they're, they, they see themselves as self-styled dissidents against the extremes of our political culture and all the rest. And they have a point. A lot of these people have a point. Um, because as I say in the thing, rebelliousness in some ways really is contextual. Um, Barry Weiss, her positions aren't particularly transgressive in the broader world of American politics. They're transgressive at the New York Times. Um, and, you, you know, my views about Donald Trump aren't particularly transgressive or rebellious if you look at polling um, or even if you look at, you know, polling among right of center people. There are lots of people who agree with my views. What's what makes my views sort of more of take on more of a dissident flavor? Um, same thing with David French and everybody else. Is uh, you know the context. You know I've been a for 25 years. I've been sort of part of you know conservative media and conservative establishment to one extent or another. I'm a Fox News guy. My views are not consonant with the standard talking heads on Fox News. Um, you know, I, uh, much of the the conservative establishment went one way, and a few of us went another way. Um, so, in one context, I'm I'm a dissident. In another context, um, my views, at least on Trump, aren't you know very rebellious. My views on conservatism still are in the context of the larger liberal culture and the rest. And so, anyway, um, but it's not even political partisans. Uh, you know, as I often point out. You know, you watch the Oscars and these people, you know, these multimillionaires get up and talk as if there are these incredibly brave rebels to a room full of people that agree with everything that they say. <laughs> and they denounce to one, ex and one, to one extent or another a country that made them fabulously wealthy and successful um, as if it takes profound courage to do so, when really it's almost what you come to expect from these people, and it would be career suicide to say the opposite, right? I mean, if they went up and said, 
I think it's unpatriotic to take a knee uh, during the national anthem. Uh, that would be rebellious in the context. But they think that they're rebellious in, you know, in some other context than the one that they're actually in. And it's kind of bravery on the cheap. Uh, but it's not just people in Hollywood. It's, it's sort of everywhere you go. And, um, you know, we teach kids from a very early age that, you know, it's, you need to be a maverick, be true to yourself. Don't listen to others. Don't be a conformist. Um, nonconformity is one of the most persistent forms of conformity in American life. Um, we kind of, you know, we wear our rebelliousness as a fashion statement. Uh, corporations advertise as if only true rebels would buy their, you know, SUVs or whatever. Um, colleges teach people to be rebels. I mean, I, one of the, I made this point a million times, but one of the things I always love to do when I'm talking to college audiences is talk to them about how um, they've been fed this ridiculous notion that to be liberal or to be progressive is rebellious. And, you know, I always love pointing out to them, you know, so let me get this straight. You know, your professors are liberals. Your, the administrators here are liberals. Most of your classmates are liberals. The bulk of the books that you read are in defense of liberalism or progressivism, which I, that's the sense I mean it. The, the movie industry is liberal. The publishing industry is liberal. The media is liberal. Um, fashion industry is liberal, the music industry is liberal, and you think you're sticking it to the man by agreeing with them? Um, and it's so, anyway, the point, the larger point is, is that basically throughout our culture, we have come to think that there is great nobility in being a dissenter or being a rebel or a nonconformist. And I think that some of that is sort of great. Uh, some of that is sort of um, part of what it means to be an American. It's part of our American exceptionalism. Uh, Charlie Cook, you know, makes an argument that, uh, quote, in the G-File about how he's always sort of argued that America is a Protestant country. And he doesn't mean by that that only Protestants can be good Americans or anything like that. What he means is that, you know, America in a really significant way is not just religiously, but politically, a product of the Protestant Reformation. It is, as, as he puts it, you know, Protestantism cut out the middleman and allowed the individual to find salvation and God and all of that um, without, you know, an intercessor from the Catholic Church or an institution that, you know, was in charge of these things. And, and they set up a system and a culture in this country that kept that alive. And the individual pursuit of happiness, one of the reasons why it's individuals, because we're weird. We're not Watusis. You know, we're, um, um, we're Americans and we're weird like that. I think where we get into trouble is that uh, you have this situation where um, everybody wants to claim to be a rebel. And, um, and that's to one extent or another fine. I mean, I think there are real problems with it too, but it's not good enough that they be rebels. Um, part of this new rebelliousness is the desire to impose orthodoxies on others. And um, you see this all over the place on the left. That's what cancel culture really is. 
is a way to police a new orthodoxy. Um, there's a cancel culture on the right, too, that tries to police an orthodoxy, both internally and externally. Um, it's true, you know, across the political culture in a lot of ways. Um, and so that's sort of like the Barry Weiss point is that, you know, the, the left thinks it's ridiculous. Like David Brooks wrote a column today or yesterday where he has a nice shout out to us where he talks about how, you know, free thinkers are having to leave these elite institutions um, and start up things like the dispatch and Andrew Sullivan has gone and started his thing and, um, and all the rest because they're not welcome at these elite institutions anymore because they're policing an internal orthodoxy on things. And, you know, of course, Twitter blows up and gets really mad at him for saying this and says he's a hypocrite since he's writing this for the New York Times. And uh, the, the outrage over the column kind of proves the point is that they think the New York Times should not have dissenters to this orthodoxy there. Um, and nothing David Brooks says is all of that wildly controversial, except for the fact that it's in the New York Times. And, um, and so I think that, you know, one of the challenges we have today, everyone, you know, as I said a couple times in recent podcasts, a lot of the debate about free speech is really about these competing quasi-religious orthodoxies that people want to impose on others. And... Um, you know, I'll say this for the post-liberal integralists, the Sorabamari crowd, they definitely see themselves as rebels taking on an establishment, but at least they are not hypocritical about wanting to impose an orthodoxy on others. Um, the problem with a lot of people on the progressive left, the sort of progressive left cancel culture crowd, is they simultaneously want to hold on to their self-conception as free thinkers and as, um, and as rebels and dissenters, while at the same time failing to grasp the fact that they are in fact the imposers of orthodoxy who control the commanding heights of the culture. They are conservatives in the same way that the pre-Protestant Reformation leaders of various institutions were conservatives. They want to hold on to their authority and their power over the culture. They want to hold on to their vision of the orthodoxy, and if they're open about it, and some are, that's that's fine. I'll argue with them. I think they're you know wrong on a lot of the substance, but they also hypocritically want to pretend that they are not trying to stifle other people's speech or or, or impose their own um, sort of woke handmaid's tale orthodoxies on other people. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have this great dysfunction in our culture. It's it's related to the David. French's point about how, you know, everybody in the culture war thinks they're losing. And I think part of that is because you can't really consider yourself a true rebel if you're winning all the time, right? I mean, there's this, there's, there's this symbiotic relationship between victimology um, and rebelliousness. There's no, you know, why, re why rebel if you're not a victim? The right likes to point out, I think correctly very often, that a big chunk of what the left is about is victimology. But a big chunk of what the right is about is about victimology too. You know, lots of people, I, again, I think fairly, believe that the elite culture is hostile and contemptuous to them. That's why so many people embrace the label deplorable, because it really pinged that sense of grievance. 
And so they think that they're rebels taking on, you know, this monolithic um, orthodoxy. And um, in some senses they are, but they also have their own orthodoxies that they don't like dissenters about. Believe me, if you read my email, you know what I'm talking about. And at the same time, the other side wants to impose its orthodoxies while still holding on to this idea that their enemy controls everything. And it's just a hot mess. So anyway, that's what the G-File is about. I won't, I won't cannibalize it any further. Um, so uh, what else to talk about? So, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and I haven't written it yet. I mean, I've written pieces alluding to it. Is I think that you know the people. How to put this? The people who tell me, including close friends of mine, who tell me that you know America will be over if Joe Biden's elected. That people you know making the same flight ninety three election with Joe Biden. Um, the people who unironically. What was it? Uh, Boris Epstein, I think that's his name, recently tweeted that um, some video of some protesters in Portland or something and said, um, this is Joe Biden's America. And everybody dunked on him. It's a point I've made where a couple times now, uh, it's kind of ridiculous to say that's Joe Biden's America when this is literally Donald Trump's America where this is happening. And I get the argument that people think it'll be worse under Joe Biden um, and that Joe Biden will not have the, the, the Stocktivite will, um, the Ubermenschy will that Donald Trump allegedly has to put, to crush these kinds of anarchist revolts um, and therefore that they will reclaim vast hordes of the cities um, and destroy the suburbs and all of this stuff. Um, I get the argument. I just don't think it's true. I think it is far more plausible that a lot of that stuff, I mean, I'm very much with Ross Douthat on this. I think a lot of the unrest that we have um, is a is a result of Trump and that Trump is making it worse because he does not know how to talk about these things. Um, this is one of the reasons why, um, and I, as I wrote in my column, which pissed off a lot of people, including Dispatch subscribers, um, I have so much contempt for the entire warp and woof of the debate about the Portland protests and Trump sending in troops, uh, because what everybody is trying to do is uh, use the, the facts on hand for their own narratives, none of which are entirely or even largely true. Um, what Trump is doing is legal and it's constitutional, and I hear hourly on TV that it's illegal and unconstitutional from Democrats, from MSNBC news anchors. Um, and it's just not, I mean, there may be some technical violation or somewhere, but the commander in chief, the president of the United States, the head of the executive branch has the ability to deploy forces without ident you know, without wearing identifying marks if need be to protect federal property. Um, that doesn't mean I support what he's doing because what I find outrageous about what he's doing is um, he's, he's doing it essentially for B-roll in some campaign video. Um, he's not, you know, look, I mean, I, I, find it, I find what he's doing offensive, mostly on the grounds that it is, is politically motivated and incompetent, not because uh, he's like 
you know, as Joe Scarborough put it, you know, Pinochet or um, the Chinese Communist Party. If Trump were a true authoritarian or totalitarian figure, um, the the undercover federal agents that are out there in Portland and elsewhere wouldn't be grabbing one or two troublemakers and putting them in cars and interrogating them or arresting them for bad acts or whatever they're doing. They would crush the entire protest. They would go Tiananmen style. Um, and I think the comparisons of the United States, the communist China, are really anti-American nonsense. And again, sort of like I said, as I was saying earlier, you can fall short of being Hitler and still be doing bad things. You can fall short of, of being Pinochet or doing what the communists are doing in China and still be wrong for what you're doing. But what he's doing is, is he's, he's basically using this, these things to fuel a political narrative, um, much like he tried to do with the, the, car the immigrant caravan for the 2018 election, uh, elections, which did not work, and much like he tried to do in 2016 with all of his American carnage nonsense. Um, at a time of historically low crime rates, he was describing the entire country as this gruesome crime scene. And it was all Roger Stone BS. It was, um, but it was effective, you know, and it was effective in part because Hillary Clinton was awful. But he's trying to conjure up something similar with this stuff in Portland. And, um, and why I have contempt for the people in Portland too, and, and almost every other commentator um, who takes these extreme positions one way or the other in all of this, is that everybody is, it's, it's a tragedy of, common, of the commons. Everybody is doing what is in their own narrow interests. Um, Antifa very much wants Donald Trump to send, you know, he, Antifa, the Antifa types would love it if he full-on sent American troops into all of these cities. I mean, like, um, it's... It's very similar to Lenin's doctrine of defeatism. And like today we understand defeatism as like being a pessimist, right? Of sort of giving up early. Um, but that's not the intellectual etymology of defeatism. Defeatism was an ideological strategy pursued by the Bolsheviks that said, it basically boils down to the worse, the better. It said that it would be better for the revolutionary cause to heighten the contradictions, to force a defeat in World War I so as to crush the legitimacy of the regime and hasten the inevitable overthrow of the government with the forces of the Bolshevik Revolution. It was, defeatism was a, was, a, was a strategy of kind of, in its own way, boldness, not sort of, you know, I'm taking my ball and going home. And Antifa, you know, to the extent we should take them seriously, and I'm of two minds about that, that's, they, they, they want that. They want to heighten the, the contradictions. They want... Don, they want to goad Donald Trump into doing sort of what he's doing. And because it suits their benefits, it suits their purposes. This is a time-honored tactic among radicals is to force um, conflict by making it impossible to be somewhere in the middle. Um, and, to, and that, you know, it kind of reminds me, this is why I hate so much of American politics these days. It kind of reminds me of... Uh, uh, some of you might remember in under the Bush administration, there, I think it was, well, maybe it was under the Obama administration, but there's some guy like, you know, five or 10 years ago who was determined to keep burning the Quran. And um, an enormous number of liberals took the position that this proved 
the limits of free speech and he should be banned from doing so because it would incite Muslims around the world to commit terrorist acts against us. It's sort of like the original nonsense explanation for the Benghazi attack being a response to some dumb movie, which the Obama administration tried to put out, and which I think Barack Obama outrageously fueled this idea that somehow these kinds of attacks were warranted when Americans um, uh, exercise their free speech. At the same time, I think burning the Quran is idiotic. I think it's ugly. I think it is bigoted. I've, and I think it's, it, it's a bad, just a bad idea tactically, never mind morally. Um, but what I hated about that moment was that it forced people to choose a side between upholding abhorrent and ridiculous exercises of free speech or endorsing the idea that terrorists have some sort of heckler's veto over the United States of America. And I'm sort of a, you know, uh, not one cent for tribute, but a million for defense guy about these kinds of things. I very much don't want people to behave like jackasses, but Americans have a right to behave like jackasses and other countries don't have a right to subvert our, force us to subvert our constitution or curtail our liberties just to appease them. And, um, uh, and, but that's sort of how we are in, in this debate these days. One, one is told, at least it's implied, that one either has to take the position that what Trump is doing is the same thing as what the Communist Party does when it rounds up Uyghurs and sends them to concentration camps, or one has to believe that he is this heroic paladin of law and order. And I think both are nonsense. What he's doing is, I think, indefensible because it's, he's doing it much like his phone call to the Ukraine. He's doing it for his narrow political self-interest. He does this kind of thing all the time where he takes this some grandiose position um, for his narrow self, political self-interest. He entices all of his allies to gussy it up as some grand principled position and then forces the other side to take the opposite point of view when really what he's doing is, you know, just protecting his, his narrow political self-interest. And I, I resent the effort to sort of dragoon everybody into taking these extreme positions when Occam's razor tells us that, that neither of them are correct. Now I can't remember how exactly I got onto all of this. Um, so I'll just, I'll just move on. I'm sorry, I get distracted. I keep looking in the rearview mirror of my car and um, uh, I'm heading back into Ted Kaczynski territory. I haven't cut my hair since um, in 2020 and I've only trimmed my beard once and I'm really starting to look like I, um, um, I just emerged from a cabin finishing my 800,000 word manifesto about why uh, gerbils shouldn't be allowed to eat beets. Um, and it doesn't help that people are walking by just seeing me talking to the ether uh, nonstop um, as they go by my car. But I gotta say, you know, uh, it is, you know, it is kind of weird to have, you know, hippie hair and I'm constantly worried that it looks like I have it, that I deliberately have a mullet but I am told that having uh, robust, luxurious hair um, is a great advantage in life. And um, 
um, and that, you know, it brings you on more success. And I guess that's why I should talk to you about keeps. There's a disconnect with me talking about this product because of the many maladies and afflictions of middle age that um, I do suffer from. Hair loss is not one of them, but I can attest that, you know, when I was younger, um, I was terrified of losing my hair. Um, probably more than most people because I have an enormous misshapen gourd of a head. Um, it's spherical in parts, but also pointy. And um, I would make, sorry, cars passing by. I would make a particularly unsightly bald person. Um, and, uh, and so I understand the, the fear of this. And, you know, my dad started to lose his hair when he was 19. My hair started to get thin. It used to be much thicker, started to get thin around the same age. And I didn't know where it was going to stop. You know, I, you know, for all I knew, my hair was screaming, we got no breaks. And so, uh, I spent a lot of time with another friend of mine who was afraid of losing his hair, um, researching. This was right when Rogaine started to come out on the market and all that kind of thing. And um, I can attest that the science is clear about this. The earlier you start to take care of hair loss, the less hair you'll lose. And that's why you should try Keeps. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. You can get treated from home. That's what's so great about Keeps. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for their hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to the pharmacy checkout lines and the awkward doctor's visits. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Prevention is the key. Keeps treatments can take up to four to six months or more to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save and the more likely that you'll have hair like Stalin. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. Nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you'll get the your first month free. So, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss now, go to Keeps, K-E-E-P-S, dot com slash dingo to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dingo. We thank Keeps for um, uh, sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, and I highly encourage you to go to the Keeps website to read uh, real person testimonials about their products. Um, now I remember why I brought all that up. Um, so I, I think some people should know that, you know, I've, I've been somewhat critical of, of Hegel, um, not the former Senator and Secretary of Defense, but the philosopher. Um, um, I kind of changed my mind a little bit about Hegel. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in him, but and he obviously was one of the great philosophers of the Western tradition. Um, so even when you have your disagreements with him, you got to take him seriously. And certainly his influence over Marx and others was huge, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I, I think the Hegelian dialectic um, has been the cause of a great deal of mischief in, in human affairs because 
it lent authority and credence to the Marxist notion that uh, Marxist triumph was inevitable due to the structure of history and all that. Although I should point out, I only recently really realized that the Hegelian dialectic really kind of wasn't Hegel's. Um, um, I read about this a bit for the book. I didn't end up using any of it, but Hegel um, didn't really talk about the dialectic. He talked about other people's dialectics. And what the dialectic is for the shorthand, it's this idea that there's a thesis and then there's an antithesis and then there's a synthesis. And basically it's the idea that, you know, uh, a problem or a challenge arises, there is a response to it, and then the two reconcile each other, and you get a new synthesis, which in time becomes the new thesis, and then the process goes on and on and on and again. And anyway, I, I had always thought that this came straight from Hegel. I learned in college that, you know, Marx turned Hegel on his head by talking about the dialectic and all the rest. But it turned out that I guess I got that a little wrong because Hegel actually was characterizing uh, a, a dialectic in Kant and didn't believe it in himself. So anyway, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds and all that, and some of you are probably already saying too late. The reason I bring up Hegel and the reason I bring up the dialectic is I think that regardless if you want to talk about it as some sort of teleological structure to the universe and or a permission structure for Marxism, put all that nonsense to the side, just as a matter of sort of common sense, there is a sort of dialectic fashion to how politics works that you propose that 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 you introduce something there is a reaction to it and um and the reaction is sort of the opposite it's sort of like a newtonian thing it it, it, it elicits an equal and opposite reaction right so there are all sorts of people who, who argue that, that again this is why i brought up that stuff from the column um, there are also people who argue that Trump is there, is this bulwark, right? Not any relation to the, the publication. He is this, this line of defense against all of the terrible stuff out there. And a lot of the stuff out there is terrible. Um, but I think a more plausible under, or a more realistic and historically grounded understanding of all of this is that the reaction to Trump is because of Trump. And the reaction to Obama was because of Obama. And it doesn't mean that everybody who reacted to Obama was right and that, or that Obama was wrong about everything or that Trump is right or wrong about everything. That's not my point. It's that you invite a counter response in politics. You know, we see this in the weird way that negative partisanship changes people's position. You know, Trump comes out against free trade. All of a sudden, Democrats like free trade more than they ever have. They haven't studied up on free trade. They're not like newfound converts to Adam Smith or anything like that, David Ricardo or anything, or our own Scott Lincecum. Um, they are, uh, um, if Trump is for it, they're against it, right? It's really it's sort of simple and, and in, ways infant, in a way infantile as that, and vice versa. Um, you know, conservatives who were pro-free trade for decades all of a sudden, because Trump is against it, they switch too. And there were things that, you know, if Obama did them, they would be, we, you know, conservatives or Republicans would be knee-jerk against them. And, you know, the, so anyway, the point I bring up, bring this up is the more I think about it, if you think about, you know, what was the mass populist response to Barack Obama? Well, it was the Tea Parties. And, you know, 
as I've said many times, the Tea Parties were the one populist movement I could actually get behind to a large degree because what they wanted was um, getting back to basics, living within our means, restoring the, the place of the Constitution and our order. They were for limited government. Yeah, there were yahoos and weirdos and, 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 and hotheads who were attracted to it, which is true of any mass movement. There are all, all sorts of moth-like opportunists who go you know, where the heat and where the light is and try to take advantage of it. And so, yeah, if you want to judge the Tea Parties by the most ridiculous people or the, or the grifters who tried to bilk it, um, you're going to think the Tea Parties were bad. But I went to enough Tea Party events, talked to enough grassroots Tea Parties people uh, to know that a lot of it was really great. And, um, and I thought it was a good sign. And so there was a reason why you got that reaction from, from, from Barack Obama. Um, what is the reaction you get from Donald Trump? Well, you get the resistance. You get um, a renewed, um, you know, sort of legitimacy or a, a newfound legitimacy for you know, some of the more extreme Black Lives Matter stuff. You get the 1619 Project. Um, you, get, uh, you get some progressives actually all of a sudden talking about constitutional norms being good, which I think, you know, there's some hypocrisy there. If you believe in the living Constitution, um, if you believe that every generation can breathe new meaning into the plain text of the Constitution, then uh, you shouldn't get too cross when the other side breathes its own new meaning into it, unless your real point is that you just want the Constitution to mean what your side says it means for reasons of power, not reasons of principle. And, um, but still, I'd rather have the left talking about how the Constitution is good and constitutional norms are good. Um, I wish they were more consistent and, 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 and carried that logic out beyond the ways it's inconvenient to Donald Trump. Um, but my point is, is you get a reaction. It's going to sort of get this antibody response. And um, the idea that somehow the forces, like you're still going to get under, I think, the, 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 the sort of people looking for a permission structure to support Trump are right. You still have Black Lives Matter protesters, the good ones and the bad ones and all of the rest. You're still going to have Antifa. You're still going to have sort of the whatever iteration the anti-globalization crowd takes next, those guys, that's baked into the cake. You're going to have that stuff. You had that under Obama. You had that under Clinton. It exists. But um, you're not going to have the, the denizens of these elite institutions supporting these forces in the same way under Biden because these forces are going to be a problem for a Democrat instead of a Republican. Right now, look, I, mean, I know people were mad at how I was disparaging of the protesters in Portland. Um, uh, and I get it. Maybe I should have phrased things slightly differently in my column. But my point is, look, when you have thugs chasing federal agents into a courthouse and then trying to set it on fire, even if you don't condone that stuff, if you're out protesting with them, and not trying to stop them from doing that, then you have some culpability there. And if you're the host of an MSNBC show and you paint all of those people, the peaceful protesters and the, 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 the arsonist committing um, thugs, 
as peaceful protesters, as, as modern day dissidents who um, are freedom fighters and all the rest, you have some complicity too. And those people won't do that the same way in a Biden presidency. Now, this is not to say that therefore you should vote for Biden or not vote for Trump or all that kind of stuff. That's other people can have those arguments. It's just simply that these straight line projection, almost comic booky explanations about how politics work really just aren't persuasive to me anymore. Um, um, and there are arguments that have some plausibility, I guess, for voting for Donald Trump, but the idea that he will restore order and um, get everybody to fall back into sort of a 1950s-style complacency, um, I just think it's nonsense. Things will be more chaotic in a second term of Trump. Um, there will be more of this kind of insurrectionist um, outpouring under Trump because, again, liberal elites will endorse it. They will encourage it. They will give it favorable press coverage. Um, and uh, just as they gave negative press coverage to even the best examples of the Tea Parties, they, you know, they take partisan sides. And, um, and that's deplorable in my, my book. They shouldn't be doing that. They do it. The claims, you know, Chuck Todd is a friend of mine. I know everybody kind of is dunking on Chuck these days. And I don't want to really join into that too much. But, you know, the other day he apparently said, you know, it's just not true that, you know, any journalists, any anchors at MSNBC have a partisan agenda or, or take so or have an ideological agenda. And I just think I think that's just demonstrably untrue. Um, it is impossible to watch Nicole Wallace or Ari Melcher or Rachel Maddow or Chris Hayes um, and or or even, you know, Brian Williams and pretend that they aren't leaning on the scales against Trump and against Republicans and in favor of betting much anybody that claims to be a member of a resistance faction against them. And that should be condemned. That should be criticized. I've been doing media criticism, you know, for 25 years. There is liberal media bias. Um, but the obverse does not necessarily apply. By winning an election, by Trump winning an election or the Republicans winning an election does not guarantee you'll get less of that. It pretty much guarantees in my book that you'll get more of it. And this sort of points to something that Continetti was talking about on the podcast, which is that conservatives... You can make a case, despite a lot of the good stuff that we've gotten out of it, that conservatives made a mistake. They sort of took the wrong fork in the road when they decided that the way to, to have conservative cultural victories was to focus almost entirely and exclusively on electoral politics, particularly national electoral politics. It was, you know, and... and choose your conservative that I admire, they're all guilty of making this mistake to one extent. And it's maybe unfair to call it a mistake because it might have been the smartest decision given the facts on the ground at the time, but it just didn't turn out that way. I mean, I, I still have sympathy for the position that knowing what we knew in the wake of 9-11, that the better arguments were on the side of the Iraq war. I just think that they turned out to be wrong. 
Um, sometimes life works that way. And, um, but by focusing so much on making the Republican Party a conservative party and making federal policy and federal you know, judicial appointments, making these things the centerpiece of conservatism rather than a more grassroots, more religiously infused and more localist movement has led to a lot of problems because it turns out that there's really not as much that you can do through politics to further conservative ends than we thought. And it's even less so today. I mean, this idea that you're going to put all of these different scary, you know, liberal or leftist or progressive genies back in the bottle, if only we had 60 senators in the Senate and another term or terms for Donald Trump, is just ludicrous. And this sort of brings me back to the, the point of the G-file today, is that there is no, no one, no one is going to get to be the rulers of a coherent orthodoxy or establishment that really runs everything. That's not how our country was designed. That's not how we actually want it to, to work. Um, and even though I think it would be good if we moved more in that direction in a conservative way, um, you're not going to get it through politics. Um, because that's just not how politics works. It has to bubble up from below. You need basically a religious great awakening. And there's reason to take heart here because, you know, first of all, if, if both sides of the culture war are wrong, that they're losing and they are, it shows you that, that nothing is foreordained, right? What was T.S. Lewis says, there's no such thing as a truly lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly one cause. It just keeps going. We're all kind of champions of orthodoxy and rebelliousness simultaneously. The culture, political culture, culture in general, is, is so wide open. It's what William James would sort of call a universe with the lid off, um, that no one can get complete victory, but also no one can get complete defeat. And the only way you can have what feels like a complete victory is if you keep your agenda and your goals defined and constrained. And I'm not going to get into a whole Tom Sowell unconstrained versus constrained vision thing, but it is entirely possible to win the culture war stuff that matters to you at a local level, in a small community, in your family, among your friends and all of that. You just have to have a certain amount of tolerance for the fact that people elsewhere will be living in ways that bother you. And you need to stop thinking that if we just get the right legislation from the right number of members of my party and the right, you know, at the right level of government, we can get everybody to live the right way, which is my way. It's just not going to work. It's not going to happen. And we live in a pluralistic society and the, 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 so many of the problems that we have in our culture right now stem from the fact that, first of all, that we all want to be rebels, but we also all want to have total victory from coast to coast, sea to shining sea, and we can't. And so we take every example of some local or specific failure as proof that we lose at everything. But we don't lose at everything. It's just, it's, it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's an open field. And you can run in any direction you want. It's not, you know, 
forward toward progress and backward towards reaction or anything like that. People can move sideways. You can get partial victories and partial defeats. And all the clock starts over, not only just every day, but with every generation. And if you have a high tolerance for that, um, you can have whatever victories that you really need to have a happy life, to pursue happiness on a personal level quite easily. You just have to have the ability to tune out um, the places where you didn't succeed and that where other people have a different definition of what it means to pursue happiness. And so long as they don't harm you or harm your children and, and, um, and play by the rules, that should be okay. Um, doesn't mean I'm not a conservative anymore or anything like that. It just means that um, this idea of setting your sights on a permanent regime victory for everything that you want, nothing for the other side, is, it's, it's cartoonish and it's impossible. And it doesn't take into account that the more success you have towards that end, the more you will elicit a, sort of a dialectic response from the people who feel like they're losing everything who are going to push back on it. And uh, I, I guess the point is everyone needs to have a little bit more humility and, and a little bit more generosity to the people who disagree with them. And, you know, a little more intolerance for intolerance, whichever way it comes from. And with that, I guess I'm done. Um, thanks again for all the support out there. Thanks again for subscribing. If you can um, give us a review for this podcast at wherever you get your podcast, that would be great. If you can get your friends or family um, to subscribe to The Dispatch, that would be wonderful. Um, and uh, I'll see you when I see you.